This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. How do our children get to know us? What can we offer them to navigate their way in the world? And how do our life experiences infiltrate theirs? The National Book Award-winning novelist Tim O'Brien, as a new and older father, set out to address these questions by writing to his sons, Timmy and Tad, over 15 years. And as he writes in his new book, Dad's Maybe Book, I resolved to give Timmy and Tad what I have often wished my own father had given me, some scraps of paper signed, love, dad, maybe also a word of counsel. My father had always been a mystery to me, and he remains a mystery. And with this in mind, I wanted to offer Timmy and Tad a few scattered glimpses of their own dad, a man they might never really encounter. My audience, if there would ever be an audience, was two little boys and no one else. Tim, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much for having me. So your two little boys are now young men. They're teenagers. Yes. So how did the process of writing this book impact how you were raising them? Or as you were raising them, I mean, it's been 15 years, how did that inform your writing? Well, in numerous ways. The main way was that I stopped writing for something on the order of 10 years. I haven't published a book since 2002, which is almost 20 years, Mm. because I had decided that what was paramount was to be a good dad. Mm. And I had to be present to be a good dad. You have to be there. And I resolved that right that I would stop writing, uh, and did, because when I'm writing a book, I'm sitting alone in a room for twelve, fifteen hours a day. Mm. I'm not present for children, and when I'm not writing, I'm worried about the book and thinking about it. And so I decided I had to just quit and devote myself to being a father. However, occasionally, maybe twice a year, I would jot little messages to my kids. I'd write mm. them first longhand. I'd type them up. And I put the pages in a drawer. And one day, one of my, when he was eight or nine years old, one of my sons saw the pages and said, is this a book? Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know, maybe. And very, very sternly, <laughs> my kids said, well, you got to call it that. you got to call it what it is, your maybe book. <laughs> and uh, I discounted the idea at first. But the more I thought about it, I realized that, that my, all of our lives are, we're all writing maybe books. Mm-hmm. Maybe tomorrow, maybe not. Maybe my dreams will come true. Maybe they won't. Maybe yeah. I'll change my dreams. There's a contingency to life that I've felt since my years in Vietnam, my time in Vietnam, where every step was a maybe. Maybe I'll live and maybe I won't with every step. Maybe a landmine will blow me up, maybe not. And this idea of maybeness 
infuses my new book in, in big ways. I talk to my children about absolutism, for example, mm -hmm. that you don't have to say no doubt or I'm sure. You can say maybe. maybe. It's not a crime. It's not evil. It's not immoral. And it's, there's a little humility in the word maybe. I believe things. Absolutism, you know, absolutism can kill people, and it does. Mm. And uh, I was, I've been trying to teach my children the most, for me, the most important lesson that I've learned over 73 years is to, to have a little humility that I'm as wrong, I'm wrong as, as often as I'm right mm -hmm. about things. We and, all are. And we change our minds. Yeah, we all are. So that's an answer to the, your question that, it began as a few little love letters to my children and slowly evolved into a real book. You know, one of the things I, I, I thought about before we get back to the boys, so you have homeschool as some of the chapters, and yes. you've got a, bu a bunch of wise advice to your kids. So one is your homeschool on writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you right there is, when writing fiction, do not be afraid to lie. For a fiction writer, lying is a necessary, noble, and sublime virtue. Middlemarch is a sublime lie. War and peace is a noble and necessary lie. And as Pablo Picasso put it bluntly and clearly, art is a lie that makes us realize truth. So when I think about uh, your book, The Things They Carried, which I uh, I assume millions of people have read. It's still on school lists. It's still the book that everybody considers one of the most important books on Vietnam that have been written. That was fiction. And yes. here you're writing nonfiction. Yes. And although it's a love letter to your children, it's also a memoir. It is. And as you were writing this, did you go back to think about how you were writing the fiction books? Did you, was it a different mindset you had to get into to let go of the art, the lie, mm -hmm. and provide nonfiction. You're relying on your memory mm -hmm. and maybe your memory, and you talk about that, and the book isn't even necessarily accurate. But how did, how was that shift for you? Well, in writing nonfiction, I still felt I was doing art. I think it's, I never worked harder on sentences and on unity and pulling little threads together. But at the same time, I had to be faithful to my recollections of reality. Mm. You couldn't then, have an overt lie. No, of course not. And fiction is full of them. Things happen in fiction that don't happen in the real world, and most readers understand that. There are some who don't. There are some who think the things they carried is all what happened to me. Mm -hmm. They don't. I realize. think people are surprised it's a novel. Yeah, so many people are surprised it's a novel. For me, the process of writing is is pretty much identical from fiction to nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Making sentences is hard work for this guy. Maybe not for John Updike, who you know can rattle off that five similes in a single sentence, or could. For me, it's laborious. Uh, many hours of struggling over a single sentence. I feel happy if I've finished a paragraph over a couple of days. 
that one, I have to feel that something in each sentence, to me at least, feels fresh. I haven't mm-hmm. read it before or mm-hmm. stolen it out of you know some other book. It's got to feel that's new to the world. And that's as true in nonfiction uh, as in fiction. There are sentences in the new book that I think are as beautiful as I can make a sentence. I, I could make a little a little um, book to carry around with me with quotes from your book. I've got, <laughs> you know, if people could see us, I've got all these yeah. post-its in the book just, oh, my God, that's a great sentence. No, I yeah. love that one. <laughs> yeah. The object, I think, for any writer that wants to be a real writer is to try to make art. Mm. And that sounds fancy to many listeners, but art is just is a sense of you want to bring beauty into the world. That's what it really means, mm. for me anyway. And I think you can bring beauty into the world by telling an anecdote about that comes from the real world as well as uh, inventing one. That there, There's a little anecdote in this new book about the day my mother died. And I was in southern France vacationing with my family. My kids were seven and nine years old. And I got a phone call from my sister saying my mom had died. And I went over to a ping pong table, an outdoor ping pong table, where the boys were playing ping pong. And I told them my mom had died. And they didn't say much. They were very young. And I didn't say much. And for the next two and a half, three hours, we played ping pong silently, just ball going back and forth. And later, as dusk began to set in, we walked down a long hill to a little village where we were going to have dinner. Mm-hmm. It was twilight, kind of purple light and a beautiful Mediterranean stretching out below. And as we went down the hill, I took the hand of my older son, Timmy. And I said to him, are you thinking about grandma? And he said, no, I'm thinking about you thinking about grandma. Mm, And he was a little boy. What What a line. Yeah. Those two thinkings, I'm thinking about you thinking about grandma and the empathy. And I thought this kid lived little boy thoughts. Mm. And thinking about basketball, like totally self-absorbed. And it's an example of art can be found in the world in nonfiction. And that was my goal in writing the book is to express this human value. I started talking to you about much earlier of, 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 of uh, empathy for others and for the world that we all live in. And I, you can find it in the real world mm. if you listen. So, Tim, do you, you know, when you started writing this book, as we talked about in the introduction, uh, part of your motivation was you were in your late 50s and the the worry was that your boys wouldn't get to know you. And it's 15 years later. Do you think they know you? They know me to an extent. They're too young to ask the kinds of questions they might ask at, say, 30 or 40 or 50 when they go into middle age. 
their questions are, what was, were you scared in the war mm-hmm. as a soldier? And I would not try not to answer yes or no. I try to tell a little sto- anecdote of some sort. I like, I like expressing myself through stories. I'm not sure they understand <laughs> the stories at the age they're at. I told them about the day I was wounded. And what I remember of that day, which is very little, it's, it's almost as if it never happened, little snapshots of memory of a hand grenade at my feet, fizzling, and knowing it was going to go off and probably kill me. And I remember turning my back to it, and I remember the words, Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus. But I don't think I was uttering the words. I think they were happening in my head. I was like, chipmunk mm-hmm. talks. Mm-hmm. So some part of my reptilian brain was talking of fear of terror of I'm going to die now. So I tell the story to the boys. And if you say words like reptilian brain and uh, yeah, and what's a hand grenade? And what do you mean by fizzling? And think words like that they don't quite grasp. They know me to an extent. Uh, so to the best of my knowledge, they've never read any of my books. Including this one? Including this one. It's lying beside the bed, uh, bed of my younger kid. You think he 14, takes a peek? But I don't think he's opened it. <laughs> he knows he's in it. Um, he's heard me read from it. And I've only, he's only heard me read funny chapters. I, yeah. I don't read sad ones for him. And they, they love people laughing in the audience and they, they lead the laughter. They like that, but it's a transient liking. It's now, that was fun, Dad. Let's go do, let's go do something else now. Yeah. So, could you talk in the book about writing is about subtracting? And mm-hmm. I, I was thinking as you were writing about the boys, did, how did you decide what to leave out? How did you think about how they might feel about what you were saying? There were a couple of funny stories, which I'd love for us mm-hmm. to get to. But in general, you're sharing information about mm-hmm. who they were, who they are. How'd you, how'd you, what did you subtract? I suppressed anything that I thought they might be embarrassed by, humiliated, um, uh, uncomfortable, and anything they might be uncomfortable with. The book's going to, if nothing else, endure on library shelves for a long time. And as they go into middle age, long after I'm gone, I don't want them to be burdened by stories that might embarrass them. Mm-hmm. That I came up on the edge of it in one part of the book where I talked about the older boy being cut from his basketball team as a freshman in high school. He had lived for basketball. He practiced it constantly. He loved basketball. And one day, the coaches cut him from the team. But not just that, he he was cut from his friends, all the people he used to hang out mm-hmm, with. The team. He was mortified and embarrassed by it. And he began shutting his door every night. And I'd ask him, are you okay? And he'd say, I'm, I'm fine. But he didn't mean it. He went silent, and it changed him in some ways uh, permanently. He, he uh, still keeps that kind of door closed. 
he did not stop playing basketball. He kept at it. He find any any way he could do it, but not for the team. Didn't he make another team though? He did. Yeah. He made a AAU basketball team. I live in Texas. It's a big sports state, and there are these clubs that play basketball. And he's gotten better and better. And I think now he could make his team. In fact, right before starting this book tour I'm on, I asked him, like, it's getting to be that season. Are you going to try out? And he said, no. And I said, do you think you'd make the team? And he said, I think I would. And I said, well, why aren't you going to try out? And he said, it's, it's just putting an orange ball inside a hoop. He said, it's not that. And he said it would interrupt my. And do you think he meant it? Do you think he feels that? I do. I think he meant it. He takes great pride. He's a terrific student and uh, he's extremely bright. He takes academics. Was he the one who did the hula hoop or the unicycle? He was the unicycle. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) The kids couldn't be more different. The older boy, Timmy, uh, the basketball kid, is uh, earnest and quiet and lives inside his head. The other boy will do anything and say anything to anybody. He's just a real little rascal. They're very different personalities. And, and you know, when I think about, I, I came from a family of six. Wow. And so I think about how different the six of us are. Are you being the same kind of father to each of them? Because they're different kids. They're, they're as you just mm-hmm. said, they're turning out differently how do you how do you think about that as you're raising that what a great question i mean i think i am a different person surprisingly enough that in the way i with the younger rascally laughing funny-faced boy i'm i'm more jokey with him and with timmy who's an earnest quiet boy i'm more soft-spoken and become more earnest myself. That mm. I try to. I, I want to. I love both boys so much, and I feel like I have to reach halfway to them, sort of be what a little bit way, of who the, they a are. Bit who they are, right? I'm a little bit. So I do take on little differences of tone in my voice, and even the things I talk about with the two boys are quite different. There's a difference in age. The two years when the difference between 16 and 14 is quite a bit. I've learned it's uh, Timmy's more mature, um, knows a lot more about the world, history, and calculus, and all the things Tad is approaching. Knows a, and so you have to take into account their knowledge of the world and how you talk to them. Of course, you talk about not wanting to um, humiliate your kids, and mm-hmm. one of the one of the things that was very striking in reading the book is how you were wanting to both channel your father and keep your father at a remove. Mm-hmm. And as we we talked about at the very beginning, he was a mystery um, to you, yet you, and you loved him, you idolized, idolized him, mm-hmm. and yet um, he ended up being a very complicated man who ended up humiliating you. As you were writing this, did you start to think of your father differently? And how did, how, how did you talk to the boys about your father? And, and maybe even add to that, tell us about your father. Well, I've carried the burden of uh, my dad with me for 73 years. That's how old I am. I loved him, idolized him. 
Other people loved him. My friends wished they'd, he were their father. He was they, charming, yeah, saying, so, right? Yeah, he was clever with language, good reader, a fun man to be around. But my friends didn't have to live in the house with him as he became an alcoholic, which was very, when I was very young when it started. Yeah, he was twice institutionalized for long periods. Never, the treatment never took. He just kept drinking until he became an old, old man in the 90s. Things were so tense in our house. It was late night, 2 a.m. arguments with my mom, bitter, angry, vicious arguments, like beating each other up with language. The word divorce I learned when I was seven. The word bitch I learned when I was like eight. Mm. Words like that. I was afraid of my dad when he got drunk. He, he felt like I was afraid he'd kill me. As a little boy, I remember rigging up an alarm system in my bedroom, two little bells I had hung on a piece of string attached to the door. I remember taking the sharpest knives out of the kitchen drawer and hiding them in my bedroom. When he was sober, he was a great human being. He was intelligent, articulate, loving, you know, and that all the things you want in a human being, but he wasn't sober much. So this, when I carry this through a career as a writer, my dad has found his way into the crevices of my books, not by name, but found his way in. And this was an opportunity doing nonfiction for me to confront my own history I became a writer really to please my father, I think. Mm. That was my main. He wanted to be a writer and never did it. Ended up in a small town selling life insurance, which he hated. And I felt that maybe by doing it, I'd make some of his dreams come true. Um, and I set out to try to please him. So I've carried that burden. Now I have the, my own kids, and I do not want them to go through what I went through. Mm. That I want them to have a loving household, um, to be immersed in in love. And it's such a cliche, it's hard to, as a writer to deal with it because everything you say sounds slightly like a Hallmark card. That was my main fear in writing the book. But this is where cliches come from, Tim. Right, we dismiss them, well but said. in reality, I know they're helpful. Then that's absolutely right. And, and Tim, when you talked about your dad, there were two scenes that were very striking that um, I'd like you to share with our listeners. One is you were down in Nassau mm -hmm. uh, with your family, and your Dad had worked at the Royal Victorian Hotel down there, and you describe that time as the only un uh, uh, the only untarnished joy mm -hmm. he ever had. Describe for us what went on there for him. Well, it was the only untarnished joy he ever expressed to me. Mm -hmm. He may have had others, but it's the one that unknown the, to you, the, known to me. He was a young man living on an exotic and beautiful island, surrounded by beautiful people, friendly, uh, running a hotel with celebrities coming through. The Royal Victoria was was the hotel. 
It was the, the grand hotel of the Caribbean. And uh, you know, the Duke of Windsor would come through and people like that. And my dad would host them and so on. Yeah, I think it's where he began drinking. In fact, I don't think so. I'm, I'm almost certain that that's where he began drinking. It's kind of a host of all these people coming through the hotel. So we, well, while we were on vacation in Nassau, we decided to find the Royal Victoria. It turned out it had burnt, been burned down uh, years before. We did find a small plaque that here once stood, the Royal Victoria. And we visited this, uh, what was now a parking lot. But in that parking lot, in my head, are all these images of my dad on a tropical night with a highball in his hand and a pretty girl on his arm walking through the gardens. Meanwhile, as I'm thinking these nostalgic thoughts, my two, my two sons were dressed in Batman and, and uh, <laughs> Robin costumes, flapping, with their, the capes. The, flapping their capes at strangers <laughs> passing by. So I'm dealing with my own memories, but I'm also dealing with these little boys who think they're Batman. They were six and you know four years old, very young at the time. And there was a nice convergence that seemed to me worth a short little chapter that's partly funny. And partly the costumes that they used to wear reminded me of the costumes I've worn through my life. That mm -hmm. You're looking at one right now, baseball cap, blue jeans. But I once wore a uniform, and that was my costume when I was in Vietnam. And I've dressed up in an Armani suit and come to New York and gone to Carnegie Hall and hung out with the rich and famous and pretended I was one of them, even though, of course, I'm not. I was in a, like a, I had a small role in the notebook where I sat at a table with Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdam for a scene and pretended <laughs> that I was that, a that's movie who you star. Were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we, well, and you I, were for and, and we a bit. For one millisecond. And I, I'm a magician and I put on a top hat and done mad and pretended I was making miracles. I think we all do by what you, what you put on your body you sort of behave that way. And uh, it's it's as much true of, of, I think, all of us as it is of two little boys pretending they're Batman and Robin. So so in that, in those few sentences that you just said, uh, it reminds me of three things that I want to uh, get to. One is um, you are a magician. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of magic that was going on in your house. There were like big, you know, like right. plays, right. but they were about magic. And you talk about, Timmy and Tad, if you read this years from now, I want you to understand that my subject here is not magic, nor is it storytelling. My subject is our longing for miracles, the human journey, unknown, and all that is unknowable, the unknown moment from now, the unknown yawn of eternity. Mm -hmm. Is that what got you started doing magic? It was. I've always been fascinated by mystery. And I remain that way to this day. That the things that grab my attention are those that in some way are what happened to Amelia Earhart. It, I, we care. If we knew what had happened to her, she'd be one more dead pilot. And there are lots of them. 
Why did Lizzie Borden take an axe? Well, she was found innocent. She never admitted it. Yet there's that mystery. Nobody else, who Mm -hmm. else could have done it? And on a plot level, that stuff fascinates me. But more importantly, I'm a mystery to myself. I don't know why I do the things I do. Um, I can offer little explanation, but none of them really satisfy me. And, I and think, do you feel like you need to get an answer? I think we search for them but never find them. Mm-hmm. There's that they, they tempt us into the future. Um, tomorrow's a mystery. I got pickpocketed today, as I mentioned to you earlier, and I don't know how I'm going to get through tomorrow without an ID, without money, without... I was lent some money, thank goodness, but... Uh, I feel like a man who is now without an identity. Well, when I flew into New York yesterday, I was a different person. Mm. I wasn't feeling this sort of naked feeling I have now of a man. I don't know how to get through each day without all that identification stuff that we all sort of take for granted. And I think in different ways, that's true for everybody, that, that tomorrow is a mystery and tomorrow tempts us, makes us keep turning the pages of our own lives to discover what the mystery of what tomorrow may bring. And that brought me to love my hobby of magic, that uh, it's about mystery. Mm-hmm. But it's also about artifice. A lot of it about artifice. It's all artifice. <laughs> right? There's not yeah. really magic. No, there's well, not. Well, there could be. There's not really magic. It's and did your like boys it. want to know what was really behind the magic, or or at what point did they want to not have you? Well, they were around me so much that they learned the secrets. They'd stand behind me yeah. and they'd see how things were. Does that do. make them cynical? It made them not want to see the trick again once they know how it. Yeah, is. that's what I meant by once you know that once the world feels explicable, it sort of becomes all kind of ho hum. You know, oh, that's why that happened. Um. They do, we've put on long, elaborate two-hour magic shows every couple of years in our house with Matt with dancing and music. They're really elaborate. There's a plot that runs through the show. And your wife, Meredith, went along with this. Meredith is part of it. Some friends are part of it. We practice for eight months. Eight months? Very serious. It's hard. And the idea is to cast a spell in the same way that in a book one tries to cast a spell. A reader knows when you're reading Huckleberry Finn, it's not happening. But as you fall into a book at two in the morning and you love the book and you're reading along, it feels as if it's an, it feels it's real like a, enough. Like a dream. And, you, and, and when magic is done well, it, feel, it feels the same way. It doesn't feel like tricks. You want to have, have a spell where everything is suffused with magic. So we'd... We do 150, 180 tricks in a two-hour show, but by the slowly, you don't think of the word trick. It just you don't you sort of give up trying to figure them out because you, there are so many of them. And you uh, succumb. Yeah, what's to come? So, Tim, it, speaking about storytelling and magic, one of the writers that is very present in your book is Hemingway, mm-hmm. and. So I have a couple of questions about that. The first time you were introduced to Hemingway, your father had come into your room. 
gave you a big fat book of his short stories right. and told you to read them. Mm-hmm. And you picked two because they were short <laughs> and one because it had soldier right, uh, in right. the name, a soldier's home, and the other was Cat in the Rain. Cat in the Rain. And then the third one was a clean, well-lighted place, clean, well-lighted right? Clean, well-lighted place, yes. So did your love of Hemingway begin because your father introduced you to it? Did it, did it engage you because of the way he writes? Did it engage you more and more because of the way in which he talked about war? What what attracts you the most to Hemingway? Well, at, at first, I was not engaged. I I was you just sca- did was, what he asked you to scared. do. I did yeah. what he said to do. I didn't have a thing to say about any of the stories. Um, I was terrified of having to talk to him. He said, "Read five stories and talk to me about them." And I did. I read them, but he vanished. He went drinking, and I never had to talk to him, but I waited for him, and I was just terrified. I had nothing to say. Uh, I was bewildered by all the stories. And uh, so my first encounter as a young man was just, it was a mixture of fear of my, I have nothing to say to my dad. But Hemingway stuck with me because of that, 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 that would, that memory of reading those stories and how afraid I was of having to say anything meaningful about them. And uh, later on in my life, I read a, you know, more of his short stories. I don't have a love affair with Ernest Hemingway. I chose Hemingway uh, because to my kids, he'd be accessible. His diction's accessible. It's not mm-hmm. like reading James Joyce. You know, it's, it's Midwestern diction and no fancy Spare. long words. Yeah. And I want, so I began as I wrote this new book, it began having my kids. I'd feed them stories of Hemingway the way my dad had and uh, without disappearing on my kids. I would talk to them about it. Their take on Hemingway was <laughs> was just so amazing. Hemingway would have laughed. There's a story of his called The Killers about a boxer who either throws a fight or doesn't throw a fight in Chicago. He's supposed the gambler, and the gambler is angry and sends two thugs to kill him, the boxer. And uh, I asked, the boxer says, oh, I'm tired of running. I'm not going to, I'm just going to lie here and let them kill me. And I asked Timmy about, what did you think about this boxer saying, come kill me? And Timmy said, I wasn't thinking about that. And I said, what were you thinking about? And Timmy said, well, don't boxers get hit in the head? And I said, yes. And he said, don't they hit other people in the head? Mm. I said, yeah. He said, I was thinking, but why does anybody want to be a boxer? <laughs> it had nothing to do with Hemingway's story. But and uh, but isn't that the great thing about stories, it, right? Everybody's great. reading the same words and hearing something else. Absolutely. Absolutely. In my life, I've so many times I've had people... There was a Marine, uh, or a young man who became a Marine, and a reading I gave in Chicago of a story that made me cry as I was reading. It's about killing somebody based on an incident in my life. And he came up to me afterward and said, boy, thank you for being so honest. I could tell that was hard to do. I could see the tears on your face. And I said, well, thank you for saying that. And then he turned and began to go away. And he's turned back and said, by the way, I've been thinking about joining the Marines, and now after hearing you, I know I'm going to join. Huh. 
which is precisely the reverse. The reverse. Of what I was trying to communicate, how nasty war is and how it stays in your heart forever, never goes away, the guilt and the, and the tremors at night. And the last line of that is, you know, one man's torment, my torment, is another man's imperative. Mm. It, it, we, books and authors kind of brush up against readers, but they don't interlock. There's a brushing up thing, and what you might take from a book might be completely the opposite of what I might take from a book. Well, Tim, one of the things that's very explicit in the book, um, and I'd like to spend a few minutes about this. So, you know, the the books that you have won awards for that have become iconic are books about uh, the Vietnam War mm-hmm. where you served. You have very definite opinions about the war. You have a chapter in here that that talks about how we think the enemy's bad and we're good. And if we, I think you say, if we display Saddam Hussein's boys in their death, should we be offended by someone else showing our soldiers mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. civilians in in death? And when you talk about the war, you talk about the complicity mm-hmm. that happens out of a sense of obligation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, just, you, you talk about your war buddies not wanting to think about the, um, the justification for the Vietnam War, only about their obligation. Mm-hmm. Describe how now as a 73-year-old man, 50 years removed from your experience in Vietnam, how it sits with you now about war? Great, great question. Probably my main answer would be, as an older guy, I'm more and more and more outraged by hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. So if someone stands up at a PTA meeting or a Kiwanis Club meeting and utters bellicose rhetoric, let's go kill people, let's go to war, and that person doesn't himself or herself do it. It means they're only supporting a war to the extent they want other people to kill and die. Mm. And so I said, go. That There's a hypocritical thing that happens when I'm watching television and I see the, on the Fox channel, I see somebody uttering belligerent rhetoric. And they're sitting in a safe TV studio Far away, and their from... bow tie, you know, and and this is not a political issue in any way, or unless everything is politics, maybe it is, but it offends me as a as a former soldier, and it offends me as a citizen of our country that people want to send other people's kids off to die and mm. to kill and, and tuck their own kids away at Iowa State or Stanford. And I find that offensive. Well, Tim, you know, I one of the things that I forgot, so I'm three years younger than you are. So my husband, and we were dating then in college, was part of the first lottery. Mm-hmm. But your 
uh, getting drafted was a draft board. Right. And talk about sending somebody else. I hadn't realized how subjective the draft board deciding you'll go, but my kid won't, or Mm -hmm. my friend's kid, or... Did that right. enrage you right from the get-go, or is that upon Another reflection? Another great question. And most people like aren't aware that before the lottery was established, there was your people went to Vietnam were drafted by their hometown draft boards, a grocer and banker, people they would choose in the community. Eight or nine people would sit on a board and look around a town of nine thousand people, like mine was, and they'd choose that boy is going to go, and that boy's not. That boy's going to go, and that boy's not. That arbitrary. It's felt, why me? There are plenty of people a lot more athletic than I am, bigger and stronger, more inclined to, you know, do do army kinds of things. I don't know why I was drafted. I have no idea. Um, What I do feel— Do you think it had something to do with your dad? It felt personal. Yeah, I think it had something to do. He was a town drunk, and I think that had something to do with it. Like Uh, they decided this would be good for you. Might be. They might think that. They might have thought. um, How arrogant. I don't know what went on there in their their minds, Um, but I did feel and continue to feel. I took it personally. And if I'd been, the lottery had chosen me, just a number, there's nothing to take personally. It's just fate. That's the way it was. It was. And you you get angry at a place that they didn't, the people in my hometown, they didn't know the first thing about the history of Vietnam, French colonialism, Bao Dai, they wouldn't know from the man in the moon. Mm -hmm. They couldn't spell Hanoi unless you spotted them all the vowels and consonants. And even then they couldn't put them in the right order. They knew, they, they didn't care to know about it. Stop communism, and that was it. And uh, th- there was a kind of know-nothing uh, arrogance to it all. It, uh, that bothered me then and bothers me today. That uh, I can love my country and still find fault with it in the same way that I can love my children. But I don't have to love everything they do. Mm-hmm. And I don't. But for somehow the tubas keep playing and the 4th of July rhetoric keeps coming out. So, Tim, you talk about changing the language we use uh, to describe war. You have a, a, a section. Yeah, it's. I say let's get rid of the word war and substitute the words killing people, including children. So every time the word war pops up... Uh, we, we say instead, I'm in favor of killing people, including children. That's a lot harder to say than I'm in favor of this war. Mm. It's easy to say I'm in favor of this war in the Middle East. Because it feels abstract. It's not you. It doesn't you. contain any nastiness. It's, right. it's a euphemism. It's banal, abstract, and almost a, a meaningless word. But if you were to say before your PTA, I'm in favor of killing people, including children, and you, you had to use those words— well, my proposal is obviously tongue-in-cheek. That'll never happen. I mean, the word war is there, and it's going to stay there. But it's to make us it's to hope that it at least slightly makes readers aware of what they what's behind the words of war. bellicosity in the word war. And Tim, it, what what if any circumstances do you think justify war? Well, I think imminent 
wolf at the door, existential threat. When, if someone were to come into my house uh, with a gun and threaten my children, it would justify my doing whatever I could physically do to stop it, including killing. But it does take in your face existential threat. The wolf is at the door. And it's not, it's not uh, 90% or 60%. Oh, I think, I think this is. It, it, it has to be a, a, a threat to existence. But instead, we go to war for reasons like in Vietnam, stopping the dominoes from falling. Dominoes aren't a living thing, it doesn't have any existence. And it meant that Southeast Asia would go communist if we didn't go over there. Well, we lost the war, the worst possible outcome, and the dominoes did not fall. Mm. If they fell, they fell the other way toward fascism, Burma, what was once Burma, um, Malaysia, uh, Thailand. Wars are peddled to us as pending catastrophes. If we don't go kill people, bad things will happen. We'll lose our liberties. Our honor will be besmirched. There'll be all these terrible consequences. Ho Chi Minh will race through the streets of Seattle. I'm not making that up. That was actually an yeah. image that was used. Well, we, again, we lost the war. And who wakes up saying, oh, dear God, my honor was besmirched. We lost in Vietnam. I don't wake up that way, and I'm a veteran. We have high school kids bicycling up and down this Highway 1 in Vietnam right now, as you and I are talking, from American high school students. Business is booming. Hewlett-Packard's there. IBM's there. Ford is there. Um, the, the, there was a catastrophe. The catastrophe was 3 million dead people. And if we don't wake up every morning... Uh, crying because we lost the, the war. Why fight the wild the dead people? Mm. Again, for me, it's not political. It's just visceral. I had to look at these dead people, and I probably made some of them dead because I pulled the trigger, and I was part of it. And you still see them. And I still see the bodies. And they're... Right now, as I'm talking, I'm seeing one. Mm -hmm. And it's a different thing from abstraction. For me, it's a visceral thing. I don't, I hate war. Yeah. And do you think your boys have understood that from you? Yes. Mm. So that's it. That's a, that's a big one, right, yeah. Tim? That's It is a big one. I'm not a total pacifist, as I said earlier. If somebody threatened their lives, I would do what I could to stop them. And the same with my country. If I felt our country was really threatened and existential, we will lose our liberties. And, of course, I would fight back against it. I would have gladly gone to World War II. But so many of our wars um, aren't, aren't, aren't that way. And you talk in the book about this idea that the World War II veterans are called the greatest generation, <laughs> whereas Vietnam vets are, are besmirched with the fact that the war shouldn't have been fought as if their bravery or their risking their lives was mm -hmm. somehow 
different than the greatest yeah. generation. It wasn't. Yeah, it really ticks off every Vietnam veteran, that greatest generation. It's as if the blood shed on Iwo Jima was more precious than with the blood we spilled. It's demeaning and degrading, and, and it's an insult. Uh, we don't talk about it much. I'm doing it now really in behalf of my fellow veterans who really feel much more viscerally about this than I do. And understandably. But, but it is insulting. They're the greatest generation, and your 60,000 dead people, uh, they weren't the greatest. They were the second greatest or third or mm. fourth. And... and uh, so yeah, that 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 phrase bothers a lot of people who served in Vietnam, and probably bothers people coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan today. Yeah, to think, well, why aren't we the greatest? So, so Tim, let me, let me um, uh, ask as we get to the end of the interview. You, when you were your boy's age, when you were fourteen or sixteen, mm -hmm. if you thought about what your life would be like, what would you have thought then? You were a kid in mm -hmm. small town. You had a complicated house. What, mm -hmm. Can you conjure up what you thought your life would be I then? I thought it would be kind of the life I'm leading now, not doing what I'm doing with you, speaking, but what I do in solitary when I write sentences. I feel every time I talk aloud, I'm not being my best self. Even during our interview, I know I could express things more clearly and efficiently and briefly. But when I'm writing, sitting alone in solitary, I'm making this illusion of a world in the, in, with language that as a little boy, I used to just adore looking at words and sentences, not always in great books, sometimes in the Hardy Boys. Or mm -hmm. some. I like the Hardy Boys. I, I like them as a boy. <laughs> I think without the Hardy Boys, I never would have graduated to, you know, the old man in the sea or, or Ulysses. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I, I think that I dreamed of one day making books. Making magic. And making magic. Making right? people come alive on a page. And uh, that, I love that. I love the making of the books. I'm not too good about talking about them. I don't after. know. You're doing a damn good job, Tim. Oh, I don't feel that way. Well, but let's go to your words. Let's go to your words. I'd sure. like you to read um, two pieces. This is near the end of the book. I will miss you, my dear sons. I already miss you. And at some indefinite point in the indefinite future, I will no longer be capable of knowing how terribly much I am missing you. With this in mind, I ask that we sometimes revisit one another in the only meeting places that will be left to us, which will be in dream, in memory, and in the pages of a book such as this one. Most powerful, of course, are memory and dream, and these will take care of themselves. I am worried, though, about our rendezvous in books. As your father, I cannot and should not burden you with long reading lists for the years ahead. Already I've gone too far in that regard. My invitation to meet inside books, 
must be tempered by your own individual tastes and enthusiasms. And the best I can promise is that when I'm gone, and should you decide to visit me, I will be waiting for you in the nooks and crannies of a poem such as One Art, and amid the mustard gas and illumination flares of dulce et decorum est. If you open Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, and if you persevere to the end, you will witness firsthand the terror I have felt at the possibility of failing as your father. Mm, Tim, that's fabulous. Thank you. One last lesson plan. Dear Timmy and Tad, on October 1st, 2046, your dad's 100th birthday, I hope you will take time to play a round of golf, just the two of you. If you dislike golf, please do it anyway. Walk. Don't ride. Tad will get a kick out of telling golf jokes. Timmy will enjoy the autumn sunlight and the 19th hole. On that day in 2046, you will both be in your middle age, graying at the temples, doing God knows what with your lives. But I am confident you will have become the good men that your youth now promises. Tad, I hope you still have that devilish grin, that zany spin on the world. And I hope you're still cuddling bunnies at age 41, if only in your imagination. Timmy, stay stubborn, stay earnest, and keep, keep crying for your fellow man. I get used to reading certain pieces where I can hold it in. I just never, I never read that aloud before. And um, I, my own emotions took me by surprise. For both of you in your middle age, it's likely that certain regrets will have accumulated. And I hope you won't be afraid to talk about those regrets while you're heading up the next fairway or two. In my own case, if I could be with you in 2046, I would surely express heartache and contrition involving my own father, Bill O'Brien, wishing I had known him better, wishing I had asked more questions, wishing we had played a last round of golf before his death, wishing I had slung my arms around him and pressed my face against his and squeezed a son's immense love into his bones and muscles. After the golf, Timmy and Tad have a beer together, look at a few photographs, forgive what needs forgiving, laugh at what needs laughing, and then go home. I loved you. Dad. Mm. Well, Tim, I want to 
thank you so much for spending the time to uh, talk with us. We've been talking with Tim O'Brien about his new book, Dad's Maybe Book. And what I really want to thank you for, as I read this book, and I want to go back and read it again, that you've taught those of us that are still raising kids how to be a good parent, but mostly you've reminded us what it's like to be human with yeah, all our frailties. Thank you. I've, it's a sore spot. I mean, the book is thought about some by some as a parenting book, and of course it's not that. It's not no. a book of advice. I can't even advise myself on <laughs> how to live my own life, much less advise others. So thank you for saying that. That means the world to me. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.